good to be together again, and it's great to see some faces that we haven't seen for a while as uh, things begin to open up. We're looking forward to uh, how that will go in the days and, and weeks ahead. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. We're going to continue in our study in the book of Acts. Uh, today, if you looked at the title, it's God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And I was just thinking as I was reflecting on the graduates being up here and uh, what lies ahead for them. I'm sure you have seen many of those mysteries of how God has worked and moved and uh, that will not stop. That will continue through your life as you see. And as we get into this today, I hope we'll be able to see some of that as uh, God's mysteries. I was reminded of a poem that I'm uh, going to recite occasional verses here as we go through this. It's entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way by William Cooper, who lived from 1731 to 1800. The first uh, verse of that poem is, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. So God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Well, today we're going to get some glimpses into some of those mysterious ways of God as he works to build his church. The mysteries of God's plan involves God's people, God's place, and God's purpose. That'll sort of structure our morning We've been tracing through the book of Acts how God is building his church in spite of all opposition, starting in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And he is incorporating Jew and Gentile into this one new body called the church. And we see the setting for today in Acts 15, verses 40 and 41. Paul is still at Antioch. He and Barnabas have split. And it says there in verse 40, But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then 16.1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. Hopefully you remember those names as places that he and Barnabas had visited uh, before. Uh, and this is Paul's first trip without Barnabas. Their goal is to revisit churches that Paul and Barnabas had established on what has been called their first missionary journey, as Paul said in 1536, to see how they are, to see how they are. And uh, these were churches that Paul and Barnabas established on their first missionary journey. So let's dig in and we'll see the mysteries of God's plan here. The first is in God's people in verses 1 to 5. Paul and Silas go to Derby and Lystra. Well, let's just look at our map a little bit to see what that looks like. So I'm not expecting you to see all the details here, but the blue body there is the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, here is Antioch. You remember that in, in north of Israel, which is where this church is established. When Paul and Barnabas split, Barnabas took Mark and went to Cyprus, which was the first stop on Paul and Barnabas's first trip. And then Paul and Silas uh, head north and go through Syria and Cilicia, and they end up in Derby, which is right there. And as we go through the, the account this morning, they'll also mention Lystra and Iconium, and uh, Antioch and Pisidia was another place that they had visited the first time through, and I'm sure they stopped there as well. So just to give you a sense of the geography, and for those of you who like to to know where things are, uh, this is very good. And as we talked about before, 
this area is modern-day Turkey, uh, those cities, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Uh, so we'll be extending our journey today. So anyway, let's, we'll go back to the map later, and we'll look at that. So while they're in Derby and Lystra, Luke records that they came across this young man named Timothy. He's a believer with a good reputation among the brothers and sisters. His father was a Gentile. His mother was Jewish. And according to Jewish law, uh, he would be considered Jewish because of that. Paul adds him to the team, and Luke records that Paul had him circumcised. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But as I was going through this passage, I was just wondering how that conversation went. Uh, Timothy, I have something to ask you, but wait till I'm done before you give your answer. I'd like you to go with us. Oh, great, Paul. Like I said... Wait till I'm done. But it says that Paul took him and circumcised him, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. As they went to the various cities, it says there, if you look in verse 4, they went on their way through the cities. They delivered the message that the Jerusalem council had come up with. You, if you were uh, here for that, or if you weren't, you can refer back to that. We're not going to go into detail on that. I was two weeks ago when we did uh, Acts 15, that was uh, May 9th. So you can go back online and, and look at that if, to refresh your memory. But basically, the problem addressed by the council was this. Does a person who comes to faith in Jesus have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved from sin and be included as a member of God's people? Does a Gentile person have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in addition to putting faith in Jesus. And the council's answer basically had two aspects to it. Number one was an emphatic no. A person does not need to be circumcised or obey any other part of the law of Moses to be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus alone plus nothing. The second provision for the council was that in the name of not being unnecessarily offensive to Jewish neighbors, Believers from a Gentile background were requested to avoid certain practices that could cause those Jews to refuse to hear the gospel. They were requested to avoid certain behaviors and certain things that would be offensive to their Jewish neighbors and thus cause those neighbors to refuse to hear the gospel. For example, eating meat sacrificed to idols or eating meat where the blood had not been properly drained out. These had nothing to do with whether the person was saved or not. These had to do with being loving and respectful to their neighbors in order to gain a better chance for an audience. So you say, why is Paul the vigorous defender of the belief that a person does not need to be circumcised to be saved, now circumcising Timothy? Some writers have said Paul is very hypocritical here. He's obviously being inconsistent, but actually not at all. Timothy becomes exhibit A on implementing the council's recommendations. In line with recommendation number one, Paul has, is not saying anywhere that Timothy needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. What he was saying is that it would be wise to circumcise Timothy to not cause unnecessary offense to the unbelieving Jews who would have expected him to be circumcised by virtue of being born to a Jewish mother. So in this case, it was not a matter of whether or not he needed to be circumcised. It was an example of upholding that second recommendation that the Gentiles do certain things to be loving and respectful to their Jewish neighbors. So he circumcises Timothy. Paul would rather 
have the Jewish people he's talking to stumble over the gospel than to say, well, we can't talk to you because here's a Jewish guy who's not been circumcised. He was eliminating that discussion as, as an option. Well, what's the twofold result then of Paul and Silas as they pass these decrees around the churches? And it's very interesting in verse 5. There's a twofold response. The churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. The churches were strengthened in the faith. That is, they were connecting the truth of God's word with their daily thoughts and actions. They were connecting the truth of God's word with their daily thoughts and actions. They were strengthening their faith. Plus, they increased in numbers daily of people coming to faith in Jesus. People who did not believe in Jesus were coming to faith and joined to the church. And these are the marks of a healthy church today, just as then. That is first, strengthening one another, reminding each other of the truth of who God is and how he works. We need to encourage one another, whether in large group meetings like this or smaller meetings or one-on-one during the week. We need to remind each other of these things. And it actually reminds me of what Paul and Barnabas did back in Acts 14, verse 22. Uh, It says they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Do we seek to strengthen one another with the truth of who God is in the midst of the tribulations of our lives? Life is very difficult and very challenging and many of us go through seasons where life is more challenging than others. And are we aware of that and can encourage one another that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, but God is there to guide us and to keep us and to mold us. What do we talk about with one another before the service starts? What about after the service? What about in the parking lot? What do we do during the week to encourage one another? Do we contact one another? Do we linger after the service to check on one another or do we rush out? We are called to strengthen one another in the faith to connect the truth about who God is with our daily lives. Secondly, God was adding to the church those who are being saved. That's another part, that's another mark of a healthy church. We need to be alert for those whom God would have us share the gospel. Be alert to those in our world, in our circle, with, uh, for those whom God would have us share the gospel because it's that that God uses to bring people to himself, to increase the numbers of his church, whether it be this local church or his church universally. So God is always at work to build his people in the mystery of his purposes. And so as Paul and Silas traveled around, we could see that God continued to be at work to strengthen his people and to increase the numbers daily. All right, well, that's God's people. Let's look at God's place. And that's in verses 6 to 10. After leaving the churches that Paul and Barnabas had established before, we saw that with Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, they decide that they're going to go to new areas with the gospel. And if you look at the overall account, if you read the story, we see that God ultimately wants them to get to Philippi in Macedonia. But he doesn't tell them that up front. He doesn't tell them that up front. And I want us to not miss this, because I think this is very relevant for how God leads us today. How he got them to Philippi is a very important lesson for us. So look what he says there. 
They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They wanted to go to Asia, and we'll look at the map in a little bit to look at that. They wanted to go into Asia, and the Holy Spirit said, no. Well, then they had come to Mysia. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Again, God said, no. Luke does not tell us how they were prevented. Was it threats of harm? Were there border guards? Were the roads unpassable? Was there civil unrest? Maybe members of the team got sick? Were there inward impressions that somebody said, oh, you know, I just don't feel comfortable with this? Was there a lack of consensus in the group of what they should do? We don't know, but we do know that Luke says, God said, no. And in this case, I think Rogers and Hammerstein were wrong. If, how many are Sound of Music fans? Right? All right. So what did the Reverend Mother say? The Reverend Mother said that if God closes a door, he opens a window. Right? When God closes a door, he always opens a window. And this passage says, no. In this case, not only had God closed the door, he slammed the window shut too. We can't so easily reduce God to these little pithy sayings. For reasons hidden only in the mystery of God's thoughts, he did not want Paul and Silas to take the gospel to Asia or Bithynia. That's part of the mystery of God's will. He said no. It was perfectly reasonable for them to want to go to these areas, and God said no. Well, after getting to Troas, it says here that Paul had a dream. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. They had, Paul had a dream about going to Macedonia. And in verse 10, it says, Well, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. They conclude that God wants them to go. It's very interesting here. So they put all this together. They consider their previous attempts where God had prevented them. They consider the dream that Paul had. And as a group, they put it all together and conclude that God is leading them to Macedonia. And just, this is no extra charge. I just want you to notice a little thing here in verse 10 of the change of pronouns. Uh, actually, go back to verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia, in verse 7. And when they had come to Mysia, and verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Look at verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. What happened here? Luke apparently was living at Troas at the time and was picked up there and they take him along. And if you watch through the book of Acts, there's some we's, then it goes back to they and then comes back to we again. Uh, it's very interesting. And just that little word tells us something about what happened here. And Luke doesn't say, yeah, and I went along too. He just says, we decided we needed to go to Macedonia. Well, let's go back to the map for a summary of this trip. So there they were in, uh, in Turkey. So they go a little bit north and try to go into Asia. And what does God say? No, you're not going. So they go north into, through Mysia, and they want to go there into Bithynia. And God says, no. So they continue on following the roads. They go down to Troas, where they have the dream. And as we read the story, they end up going to the island of Samothrace and then across to Neapolis 
eventually getting to Philippi there. So, and then we'll come back to this map one, la one more time as we go on. Here are some thoughts for us. Don't we ask these questions all the time? God, what should I do? Where would you have me go? And I'm sure that's all of us. And again, I was thinking of the graduates as I was as thinking of these questions. God, what should I do? How many times have you asked that? Where would you have me go? Don't you just love a GPS device? Remember the, some of us don't. Some of us don't remember these days. Just, what are you talking about? Remember the old days where you had to call somebody up and go to come and visit? All right, could you give me directions? Right, you go on Interstate 25 and then at exit three, you make a right-hand turn, but make sure you turn left at the gas station. Don't turn right, you gotta turn left at the gas station. It was awful. GPS, I still had people wanting to give me directions. I say, no, 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 just give me your address. Just give me your address, you punch it in. What does it do? Step-by-step -step directions from your starting point to where you have to go. Wouldn't you just love to have a Christian Life GPS? Amen. Right? Christian Life GPS, step-by-step. Step. Here you are now, here's your destination, and here is the step-by-step step directions. Unfortunately for that perspective, it's not unfortunately for us, because we're that with assuming that God doesn't know what he's doing, but unfortunately for that perspective, God doesn't work that way. He does not give us the step-by-step step directions all the way to the end, from now to heaven. The way God deals with it, it's like the GPS saying, at the next intersection, make a turn. Right? Left? What should I do? Yeah, just at the next intersection, make a turn. So we make a turn only to find out a couple miles down the road that the bridge is out and we have to turn back. Obviously, we should have gone the other way. God leads us one step at a time, never too early, never too late, always at the right time. Not in our time, but his and in ways that often don't make sense. Have you ever been in an intersection, made the turn that you thought was the best, only to find the bridge was out, and you have to turn around and go back? Well, that's not necessarily a mistake. Paul and, Bar or Paul and Silas wanted to go to Asia. They wanted to go to Bithynia. Perfectly reasonable places to go, and God said no. There was a purpose in it that is hidden in the mystery of God. We don't know why. When he prevents something that is that appears good to us. That is his way of leading us by the mysteries of his goodness towards us. What appears to be as negative or disappointing is often God's intentional leading. What appears to us as negative or disappointing is often God's intentional leading. His purpose is that we would know and trust him more fully because what would happen if he gave us the step-by-step -step directions? Where would our trust be? Our trust would be in the step-by-step -step directions not on the one who's guiding us. My wife and I experience this all the time when we're traveling. She's the navigator, I'm usually the driver, and I wanna know four or five steps down the road, and she said, no, I'll tell you what the next one is. Right? She's right, right? Perfectly appropriate to do that, but I wanna know the whole thing. So no, I'll tell you when the next one is. She's never late. And God does even better than that. He is never late, never gives us a wrong turn. God's purpose is that we know and trust him more fully. I heard this recently from a pastor. There is never a dead end with God. We are only on a threshold of what's next. Even if we come to what looks like a dead end in the road, there is no dead end with God. It's only a threshold of what's next. God is always providing for us by both provision and protection. He's always opening and closing doors, often in ways we do not see and do not understand. 
you know of someone who's discouraged, particularly from a long string of no's from God? Well, how could you strengthen their faith knowing that this is how God works? Going back to William Cooper's poem, I'll add a second verse. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Well, what about God's purpose? We've seen God's people, God's place. They got, God got them to the place they needed to go. What about God's purpose? Well, with God's guidance, they go to Philippi. And we see that in verses 11 to uh, 15. Setting sail from Troas, we went to Samothrace, following day Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which was a leading city of Macedonia. And on the Sabbath day, we, say, we see here, they go outside the city looking for a place of prayer. Well, that tells you something. It is Saturday the time when Jews meet together, but apparently there's no synagogue in the city, indicating that there are not enough Jews in the city. A minimum of 10 men, 10 Jewish men, was required to establish a synagogue in the city. So apparently there's not a large Jewish population here. But they find a group of women, including Lydia, of whom Luke tells us three things. He says she is from Thyatira. We'll see a little bit more about that later. She's a businesswoman engaged in selling purple goods. Purple was a very expensive dye, and items made of purple were very expensive because purple was a hard color to find and produce and to dye things with. And she was a businesswoman engaged in selling purple. But Luke also says she's a worshiper of God. That is a phrase that Luke uses to indicate a Gentile person who has come to faith in the God of the Jews. If there was a synagogue in Philippi, that is where she would be on this Sabbath. She would be in that synagogue as a Gentile worshiper of God because she had come to faith in the God of the Jews. And as she listens to Paul speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ, she comes to faith. Look in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us to stay with them. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. She was baptized. She was willing. What baptism is, is this willingness to make a public proclamation that she was turning from her old way of life. She's putting to death her old way of life and coming back to life with a new life of faith in Jesus. And not only that, she says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I love uh, John Stott's comment in his commentary on Acts. He says, once the heart is opened, the home is opened too. That is very interesting. Once the heart is opened, the home is opened too. Once she had the love of God in her heart, she was able to extend that love to those who were there and opened her home to them. One thing I've been reflecting on recently in my own life, and I don't even know what got me started on this, but I've been reflecting on whether I really live as if God does miracles. Do I, yeah, I believe God can do miracles. You ask me, can God do miracles? Yeah, God can do miracles. But do I really live? Do I really live as if I believe that God can do miracles? Might be an interesting question to ask for yourself. I know for myself, I get so cause and effect 
caught up in daily life and what I do and don't do, and life is reduced to the things that we do and the decisions we make, and we forget that there's a God out there who supersedes and overrides and works in these things to do miracles. Well, there's at least two miracles in this passage. The first, there is no greater miracle than for someone to come to faith in Jesus. There is no greater miracle than for someone to come in faith come to faith in Jesus. Lydia's coming to faith in Jesus was not dependent on Paul's persuasive words saying the right things the right way. It was important, but not determinative. Lydia's coming to faith in Jesus was not dependent on her intelligence, carefully weighing the evidence and deciding that the only rational thing to do is believe in Jesus. Again, it's important, but not determinative. Lydia's coming to faith in Jesus was why? It's because the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There is no faith in Jesus unless God opens the heart. But that's the miracle, that God opened her heart to believe. Correct words by the speaker, careful reflection by the listener are important, but they are not the determining factor. The determining factor is God opening the heart. Again, back to John Stott. He says the message was Paul's, the saving initiative was God's. Paul's preaching was not effective in itself, the Lord worked through it. And the Lord's work was not itself direct. He chose to work through Paul's preaching. It is always the same. It wasn't Paul's preaching, the saving initiative was God's. Paul's preaching didn't do it by itself, God worked through it. But God did choose to work through it. He did not save Lydia directly. He worked through Paul's preaching. So if you are a believer and don't feel like God has worked in your life, remember that when you came to faith in him, or if you understand anything about the scripture, that is only because of the miracles that God has worked in your life. If you have faith in Jesus, you sit here as a miracle of God's grace. That's the only way it happens. If you under, understand anything that's in this book and how to apply it to your life, that's a miracle. That's a miracle of God's grace. It's not because you're so smart or you're smarter than the rest of us or anything else. It's because God opened your heart, opened my heart to believe. So the first miracle is that there is no greater miracle than someone coming to faith in Jesus. But the second is God's arrangement of circumstances. Lydia was from Thyatira. I don't know about you. If you read the genealogies, you know, the list of names, usually you, you skip over them. I don't. I like to read them. If you see a place, you say, oh, I wonder where that is. Yeah, I do. I, I'm puzzled where that is. It's very important to do that because you never know what nuggets of truth you're going to come up with. You might find a piece of gold in there somewhere. Most of the time, it's just a genealogy that doesn't make a lot of sense or a place that you say, oh, it doesn't mean anything to me. But every once in a while, you find something. Let's go back to the map. So... This is where we were before. I'm just going to blow this up a little bit. So the X on the top, they wanted to go into Bithynia. God said no. They wanted to go into Asia. God said no. But this gives me chills when I think about God's leading. Guess where Thyatira is? Right there. Thyatira is an area that Paul and Silas wanted to go. We can turn the map off now. God still wanted the people of Thyatira to hear the gospel. But in this case, God decided that Thyatira and the gospel should meet in Philippi. 
God still wanted Thyatira to hear the gospel, but in this case, he decided he wanted Thyatira and the gospel to meet in Philippi. So that may well be one of the reasons that God said no to Asia, because he knew Lydia was waiting for them in Philippi. It was God's no to Paul, Silas, and Timothy that got them to Philippi in the first place, where Lydia from Thyatira was to be found. Brothers and sisters, be very sure, God is going to accomplish his purposes according to the mystery of his ways, and it is unlikely that his ways will always make sense to you and me. It's very unlikely that his ways will always make sense to you and me. As a matter of fact, if they do, he's not God. For example, in our own life, and it's a story I'm not going to tell, how a teenage girl in a house fire got our family to move to Havertown. There was not much in our life that made much sense at that time, but God moves in mysterious ways. Let's go back to our poem, and I'm going to add another verse. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Well, let's conclude our time here this morning. I have basically three concluding thoughts based on our, the three sections we looked at. First, God works in mysterious ways to accomplish his purposes to build his church. He increases the numbers of those who are being saved. He strengthens the faith of the church of God's people. And one of God's most mysterious ways is that he chooses to use us to accomplish those purposes. And so what can you and I do? Well, let's say yes to whatever God asks of us. Let's say yes to whatever God asks of us. What conversations will we have in the building and in the parking lot when we're done with this formal part of our meeting this morning? Or think of someone you haven't seen for a while or you've been concerned about and contact them this week to be an encouragement. Ask God to use you to help you be an encouragement to someone, to strengthen them in their faith. Second, God works in mysterious ways to guide us. He does not give us detailed directions. Rather, he uses circumstances, our thoughts, closed doors, open doors, disappointments, the truth of his word, inward impressions, personal reflections, community input, etc., 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 to guide us step by step. Both salvation and growth in the grace of the gospel is by the mysterious working together of God's sovereign leading and human action. How does God do that? How does God sovereignly lead us through our frail human actions? He does, and it's a mystery that we will never understand, at least on this side. Third, God works in mysterious ways to open the hearts of unbelieving people to hear and trust the truth of the gospel, that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone plus nothing. God works in mysterious ways to open the hearts of unbelieving people to hear and trust the truth of the gospel, that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone plus nothing. So God's ways are indeed mysterious as he builds and strengthens his church in the faith. And that just means his ways are beyond ours. And it means that God calls us to trust his ways and not ours. 
Amen. Let's close this time in prayer. Lord Jesus, you do indeed move in ways that are mysterious to us, unfathomable to us, unknown to us. But those ways are always for your greater glory and for our greatest good. The mystery of how you build your people, the mystery of how you guide us in the course of our lives, the mystery of how you open hearts to believe in you and to follow you are all beyond our ability to understand. But we are grateful that you have given us the insight into this great mystery, which is Jesus Christ in us and with us, the one who is the hope of all glory. Your ways are rooted deeply in your deep love, your mercy and your grace. And Lord, may you build in us the marks of a healthy church, the ability to strengthen one another in our faith in you, and the opportunity to see you add to your church those who do not know you now, but who come to faith in you because of your work in us and through us. And as we do so, we acknowledge that every good thing comes from you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.